Please uh, turn with me in your worship folder or open your app or open your Bible to Mark 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Almost. Not quite. By a hair. <laughs> when you hear those words, what does it make you think? When you hear the words of somebody saying, you were almost chosen. You were just about that far from being complete. It was just by a hair that you came in second place. Does it make you think to yourself, well, it's not worth trying anymore. I'm never going to succeed. I might as well just give up. Or does it make you think to yourself, what's the, the one thing that I need to change about my life in order to get to that place? What's the, the one thing that I need to change about the way that I live that will push me over the edge? What's the, the one thing that I need to do that, will, that I can change in the way that I have designed what I, so that I can be here instead of just underneath it. The question we're asking today is, what's the most important? But it's interesting that when Jesus answers the question, what's the most important? The person who asks him that question and receives the answer basically repeats it back to him and says, good job, Jesus. You answered wisely. And then he adds a little caveat to it. And when he adds that little statement to it, Jesus says he's almost in the kingdom. He's not that far off. I think some of us rest in that place quite a bit in our own lives. We rest in that place where we think, I, I don't think I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. I, I don't think that I've attained exactly what I'm supposed to do to be all that I'm supposed to be. And so I'm not quite yet there, but there has to be something that I can do that will get me over the edge. What is it? What well, goes back to the question? What's the most important 
Now, he's not the only one here that we experience in this, in, in, in this passage in Mark that is not quite there, that is almost in the kingdom. As a matter of fact, if we look back and, and we see where we're at, we recognize that we're in day two of Holy Week when this question comes about. You see the triumphal entry, it happens in chapter 11. And here are people who are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, praise God, the king has come. But by Thursday, they're yelling something else. If you've been in church or you've experienced Holy Week, you know. See, they're not quite. They're not sure. And and we have Jesus walking by a fig tree the next day, and he goes into the temple, and he flips things over, and he looks around, and there are plenty of people in the temple who are there to worship, but then there are those who are not. See, they're not quite. They might be a little bit further off. And then we see the disciples who aren't quite sure what's going on. And yes, they have to be in the kingdom, but their understanding's not quite. Not yet. And then he deals with the Sadducees and he deals with the scribes. And they have this argument about resurrection. Look, Sadducees didn't even believe in resurrection, yet they're arguing with Jesus about resurrection. Because they're trying to trap him. They want to take him down. And that's where this scribe, who maybe was on the outskirts, and he's hearing Jesus answers the Sadducees, and he thinks to himself, there's got to be something more to this guy than what they're letting on. I'm going to ask him, what's the most important? What is it? And Jesus answers him. And the man's impressed. What is the most important? Jesus answers him strictly from the Bible. He takes, goes to the Old Testament. He looks at Deuteronomy where he gets the Shema. That's the thing that every Israelite knew. Oh Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To begin the greatest commandment, he says, Oh Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every Israelite good or bad, indifferent, those who were far off or those who were close knew that because they said it all the time. They said it before they left their house. They said it when they entered into their house. They said it before meals. They said it before they went to sleep. They said it as their greeting. Oh, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on in Deuteronomy, we know where he says, and you shall beloved the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. But how did Moses put it when he heard from God? It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. See, Jesus adds something there. Jesus adds that he needs to love the Lord with all his mind. It's interesting to think about that. Why wouldn't he just quote Deuteronomy? Why wouldn't he just say what was given that every Israelite would know? I think this is a unique thing that we figure out about God in this passage directly is he goes particularly to that man. See, he's a scribe. He's somebody who has thought a lot about God's law. As a matter of fact, that's been his whole existence to think about the implications of God's law. And so here's Jesus being interactive with a scribe and he comes to him in his particularness in who he is. 
And he says, I'm not going to let you off easy. You don't just love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, but you also love him with your mind. The thing that you take the most pride in, the thing that you use the most, you love him with that as well. And then he adds to him, and the second is like this, you, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than this. He takes that from Leviticus. Jesus is looking at Leviticus when he tells him that. See, he's going back to what this man would already know. Leviticus chapter 19, it says this. I mean, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart and you shall have reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. See, Jesus is going back to what the scribe would already know and bringing it forward to him. That's the reason why the scribe, when he hears it, knows that Jesus knows the answer. He says, you've answered wisely. And then he goes a step further and he says, not only have you answered wisely, you've pointed out very clearly this, that to love God and to love our neighbors is much more than all the whole burnt offerings or sacrifices. That the whole system of religion that we base our life upon, he's saying, is underneath the fact that we are supposed to love God and love others. Essentially, what the man was saying is this. Don't confuse being intellectually convinced of the gospel or of who God is for being experientially introduced to the gospel. He's saying you can have a lot of knowledge about who God is, but unless you experience who God is, then you're not actually getting it. You're not there all the way. You're not quite present. Again, let me ask the question. When you hear that, does it make you think, well, then I might as well stop trying? Or does it make you think, what do I have to do more? So let's break it down. What does it mean? Well, when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, what he's saying is you have to love God with every bit of who you are, everything possible. Now, it's really great for us who are sort of in ministry and we're trying to encourage people to do things because heart, soul, mind, and strength, it gives us the ability to talk about every part of your life. We can say, well, we want you to give an hour of God at least in your heart. And so we talk about worship that way, that your heart goes towards worship. And we want you to, to do service. We need you to serve in the creche or other things. And so we talk about in your strength, right? In your mind, we want you to be in Bible studies because you need to expand your mind. And, and so you should be in Bible studies. So love the Lord your God with mind. And the way to do that is with your Bible study. Right? Heart, mind, and soul. Soul is a connection with other people, and so you should be in a small group as well. See, just like the scribe, we want to put it really easily in a list of things to do. Uh, four hours a week, <laughs> I can hit all of these things and love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't think that's what God's talking about here. 
What Jesus is pushing in is to say every single bit of who you are, all that encompasses you, everything that you ever possibly hoped to be or have been, all that you long for, all that you dream about, all that you study, everything that you feel, every bit of you should be in love with me. All of who we are. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. I I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. Some of us, that might be really easy because we don't really love ourselves that well. We think we're pretty worthless. And so it's not that hard. Hear me when I say, he's putting it in an order. He's saying that as you love God, you will love yourself. And as you love yourself, you will love others. That it is a movement of the heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is the movement of all who you are. That as you fall in love with God, knowing that He has loved you first, you move into understanding who you are. And it kind of sounds like this. That God is in a redemptive pursuit in His steadfast love to bring you in to whole truth relationship with Him, with yourself, with all others, and with the place that He's put you. It's interesting if we go back to that Leviticus passage, it shows us how we're supposed to love our neighbors. If we skip a little forward, up a little bit, it says love your neighbors, starting in verse 9. Let me just read it to you. It says, When you reap your harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes from your vineyards. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourners. I'm the Lord your God. So if we're going to love others, that means that we set aside, we prepare. We are in a place of anticipation of giving and generosity to those around us. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely or be so profane the name of God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning, saying, pay, be generous. Give to those who have worked for you righteously. Give a living wage. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. We should care for everybody and who they are and how they are made and what God has done and what He has brought about in their lives. That we don't set aside or marginalize people. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among the people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. You shall not hate your brother. How do we live in a place of love for those that are around us is this, that we move into the place that God has for them. And when God looks out on His creation, He looks out in delight. And so we move into a place of love for our neighbor because we walk in a place of delight. Look, it's hard sometimes. We can be walking down the street and we can be seeing folks that are coming up and and maybe it's not our favorite person and so our minds and our hearts automatically go to, should I cross the street so I don't have to engage with them? 
But we say no. Because God delights in them. So I will delight in their presence as well. You get into an argument with your flatmate or with your partner and you recognize I'm not delighting in this person. They are causing me pain or or anger or, or they are getting in my way or they're not doing it the way that I would want them to do. And we don't love them. We despise them. But the most important is to love them. To move into a place of delight. Recognizing that they are in fact created by God in order to bring delight. Now some that, that delight comes with growing. Sometimes that delight comes from things rubbing up against each other and, and saying, oh man, you're pointing out some of my, my emperor me tendencies. You're, you're pointing out some of the places that I really need to, to grow. I don't like that. I, I want to push against it. But that delight is to move towards it because in that then we can love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why do we not want to love? Why is it so hard for us? C.S. Lewis in his book called The Four Loves said this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping intact, your heart intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully around your hobbies or your little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up in a safe. Put it in a casket or a coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Think about this. When the scribe says, what's the most important thing? The God of the universe says the most important thing is to be vulnerable. To be opened up to being hurt. To be opened up to being changed. To being opened up to being challenged. To being opened up to give love and receive love. To be vulnerable. That's what's most important. It's no wonder that on Palm Sunday, on the triumphal entry, that those people turned so quickly to crying crucify him from crying Hosanna. Because they had expected a king. They had expected someone who would come in and kick out the Romans. They had expected someone who would rule. And what they got was someone who would die. <laughs> what they got is somebody who said, I'm not invincible, I am vulnerable. When asked what is most important, it is that we love God with every bit of who we are and we love others, no matter how unlovable they seem to us, because we too are that unlovable. 
And it's only by God's grace that we're able to move into the place of love. So practically, listen, when you are in a place of conflict, when you are in a place in your your life where you are feeling put down or you are feeling superior, understand that both of those are a lie and that you should feel loved by God and it should enable you and move you to look to love the other person in delight. That you are not against, but you are for for them completely as a preview that's what's going to come up in a sermon series here starting in june i want to read one john we're going to go through the book of one john starting in june john one john starting in chapter four it says this about what love is beloved let us love one another for love is from god And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us or shown most completely that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sin. Big word, propitiation, all right? What it means is that He cleared out by sacrifice our sin and made it possible for us to be in whole relationship again. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and His love, His love is made perfect in us. Imagine, if you will, that you decided for some reason that you wanted to summit Mount Everest. Some of you, that might be easier for others. And you began the hard work of getting ready and prepared to summit Mount Everest. You began with smaller hills and then mountains, and you began to get the right equipment, and you began to climb other large summits around the world. And so you've spent money to fly there and to get guides and to get equipment. But finally, after a few years, 45 for me maybe, of training, you get to the point where you're actually able to think that you'll be able to summit And so you go and you get the bottom of Mount Everest and you get your Sherpa and you pay your $65,000 to be able to climb the mountain. You have all your equipment and all your gear and you go and you begin the journey and you get to your first base camp and you're excited because you're getting ready to get there. And you continue to go further and you get to the second base camp and you feel good about getting there. I don't know, There's how many base camps are there? Probably... Let's say there's three. And so you get to the third base camp, and you're there, and you're waiting. And it's the day that you're going to summit. It's the day that it's going to happen. It's a moment you've prepared for for your whole life. And you can't wait. And you begin to climb. 
And as you're climbing up, you're seeing the summit. It's not too far out. And you're seeing the face of your Sherpa, and they seem to be a little concerned. And as you're getting closer and closer, clouds begin to move in, and a storm begins to roll in. And they're looking at you, and you're saying, let's push forward, let's keep going, it's okay if I die. And they look at them and go, yeah, but I'm not going to do that. We can't summit today. You have to turn around and go to your base camp. You are just that close. Here's the brilliant thing. We don't have to ascend the mountain. Because he who is higher than all mountains descended for us to show us completely what love is. So we rest completely in that love. Not only rest, we live completely in that love. That there's nothing you could ever do to accomplish it. There's nothing you could ever do that would bring you closer because it's not something that you acquire. It is something that you receive. How do we know that? It's interesting when you look through Scripture, especially in the book of Mark, when he's talking about the kingdom of God, which he does from the very beginning of chapter 1, and he does all throughout the rest of the passage. He's pointing out people who are not necessarily in the kingdom and out of the kingdom, but it shows us who Jesus is going for and calling. It's fishermen, it's demon-possessed, it's lame, it's broken, it's outcast, it's poor. But those who think they have it together and that they can acquire it, that they've got all the means necessary to be righteous, are the ones that get put down by Jesus. So much so that he tells us this in Mark chapter 10. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter in. Don't run the rat race of faith, of this fake sort of belief that there are certain things that you've got to do. Allow yourself to receive God's love, and from that you will do the things you need to do. It will be an outgrowth. Receive it. That's the most important thing. Let me pray for us. Lord, you're good, and all you do is good. We ask that what we receive today will be your words. And if they're not, that they'll burn up and go away. But if they are, that they'll take root in our hearts. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand up and sing as we respond to these words?